The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, October the 13th, and you're very welcome to this instalment of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We hear an awful lot these days about a global crisis in democracy with the rise of populist authoritarianism and a collapse in trust and in respect for traditional democratic institutions. One person who has been thinking about this quite a lot is the philosopher A.C. Grayling, who has written extensively in the past and over the years about the intersections between belief systems, individual liberties, and how these are expressed in our systems of government. His most recent book, Democracy and Its Crisis, he considers the challenges which are now faced by representative democracy. I talked to him earlier. AC Grayling, you're very welcome to the Irish Times. Your, your, your book is called Democracy and Its Crisis. We might come to what exactly democracy is a little later, but maybe first of all, we could try and identify what is the crisis? Well, the crisis is that uh, the way the institutions and practices of democracy are meant to work are not working. And they're not working because very, very familiar problems that we've always had with our democratic orders, the way politicians, for example, over-promise or tell half-truths or begin compromising and backsliding, have actually been weaponized now. We've got a new new problem on the block, which is this use that the big data analytics uh, make of social media and the way they can intervene in the conversation of social media, hacking, for example, the use of nudging. Now, we're all familiar with nudging now that the Nobel Prize has gone to the economist who invented this idea. Well, it's a very, very old idea indeed. But this idea of covert influence, covert influence, to um, tweak and pull, push the buttons of of our democracy and uh, uh, influence swing voters mainly, because, of course, whenever you think about any referendum or election, there's going to be two blocks of people you can pretty well rely on uh, as to which way they're going to vote. But it's the people in the middle, the people who can be influenced, the people who could, on the basis of messaging which has been extremely carefully tailored for them, be influenced one way rather than another. And we, we, we've, we've seen that. Obviously, we saw that in the United States and we're discovering more and more what happened uh, um, last November. And that in, might include encouraging people not to vote at all as opposed to voting for a particular candidate. That's true. So it was pro-Trump, anti-Clinton, don't vote at all, uh, or giving people the, the false impression that the, the vote was uh, was settled anyway. Now, exactly the same technique that was used in the Trump case and all that stuff is coming out of the public domain, was used in the EU referendum case. In fact, it was the very same company the, employed the by both... The Cambridge Analytica. The famous Cambridge Analytica. You <laughs> mentioned the word, so if they sue... <laughs> well, the, you know, the, the, um, the evening on which Trump said during the course of his campaign, I am Mr Brexit and you'll see, was a real giveaway on that one. Although, in fact, of course, the Observer newspaper, and in particular... Uh, Carol Cadwallader, who writes for The Observer, done an excellent job in bringing this out of the public domain. The real problem with it is the lack of transparency. I mean, if somebody uh, says to you, uh, it's a done deal, the, 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 the Remain vote is going to win in the referendum, you don't have to bother to get out of bed, and you know that that's a Brexiter speaking and he's been paid by the Leave campaign to put, get that message to you, it might make you suspicious. But if you didn't know where that had come from, lack of transparency in that and many, many similar respects, is undermining of our democratic order. And that's the thing that, that I concentrate on in the book, because I'm saying things that we're familiar with, propaganda, spin, half-truths, all the rest, they've been weaponized now. 
Uh, and we've got to wake up to it and recognize that even though democracy is never going to be perfect, at least it can be good enough, just providing we know who's doing what. So is this solely where the challenge is coming from? Just to focus on this for a moment, whether we call it information technology, new media, new ways in which we interact with each other as a society and ideas are communicated. They've obviously, as we know, changed enormously over the last 15 years. Some people refer to that as a Gutenberg moment. In other words, what's happening now is having as a profound an effect on our society as the invention of the, of the printing press had for 500 years ago. It if, is that the case? Is that what's driving all these phenomena which we see about a distrust of traditional political systems, a craving for, for, for simple truths, uh, a contempt for, for process? Is that all or is there more happening beyond what, what, what you've just described with the technology? It sounds like an overstatement to say, yes, it is. It is a, a, a crucial moment. But I really do think it is for the following reason. As I say... All those things, the propaganda, the spin, everything else, they're, they're very familiar. They've been with us for a long time, uh, and, and we know about them. And indeed, they're the reason why we feel a certain degree of dissatisfaction with the political process wherever we happen to live. But, but I think the point now is that this incredibly powerful tool has now fallen into the hands of people who found ways of using it which, are, which lack transparency, where the uh, money that goes into it falls way outside the period of time that anybody controlling you know, spending caps on elections, uh, keep an uh, oversight of it, uh, and where you never know whether the pro and the con or the seemingly neutral um, uh, nudge, where it's coming from and why, whose agenda it is and with what purpose. And, and this means that that has been, as I use the expression, weaponized. I mean, it's really become an incredibly toxic feature of our system now. Seems to me, you know, that, that with very few, very moderate and modest, rather small C conservative adjustments, we could get back on track by demanding that uh, everything that happens in a referendum campaign or election campaign should be transparent and that we should know who's paying for what. As soon as that happens, I think you can pretty well rely on people to say, well, I, I'm not sure that I agree or now that I know why that person is arguing that line, uh, I can think about it a bit more clearly. And I think that's important. Isn't the, the challenge with that, and I, I must say I fully agree with what you've just said, but one of the challenges is that um, this information is being disseminated through these very, very new companies, many of which didn't exist much more than much more than 10 years ago. They're also transnational global corporations. So when we dig into what happened in the UK and in the US, um, we're not sure, you know, we're not sure what country this information uh, was created in. We're not sure what country's regulations are applicable. It's it, it's about as far away from transparent as you could be. And it might seem rather difficult to figure out how you can actually impose a regulatory structure which reflects that, that global nature of, of these new media platforms. That's one of, one of the big challenges is what kind of regulatory structure would, would help here. I mean, if you consider, you know, it's now out in the, uh, out in the open because of the congressional inquiry in the U.S. about uh, people based in, in Russia hacking messaging, having these uh, sort of news services. What I think about that, of course, is that most people now get their news through social media in one way or another. So if it's distorted or if true stories have an admixture of false stories in them and you can't discriminate, big problem. So how do you regulate that? But it's also the case that almost all major players globally are involved in, in cyber defense, cyber security. And the security is not just stopping people from hacking their military secrets and so on. It's, it's trying to expose 
false news. It's trying to, to make sure that people know that Roy from, from Cork actually is Vladimir from Vladivostok, you know. And, and the reason why he's, he's saying what he's saying is because somebody's paying him to, to, to get one party into power on another. All that kind of thing, the, the transparency project really, uh, is one which um, a lot of cybersecurity, national uh, official cybersecurity, but a lot of independent organizations are stepping forward now and saying, we are going to be uh, doing fact-checking and we're going to try and push out into that conversation, um, you know, adjusted, moderated, corrected uh, um, uh, opinion on who's saying what and why they're saying it. So the silver lining here is that uh, what happened in the referendum last year in, in the UK and the Trump election uh, has been tumbled, and it's been tumbled pretty quickly. And a lot of people have stepped forward and said, this is not acceptable, so we're going to try and fight back. The big problem is the Daniel Kahneman problem, the thinking fast and slow problem. Mm. It's the people who are inattentive about this, who are not going to dig further or look for those websites where efforts are being made to correct stuff, but are just going to take whatever happens to get hacked into their Facebook and or their And that's a pretty large amount of the population. And that's a huge amount of the world population, yeah. And the other, the other problem, I mean, God bless your optimism that you think we'd be able to get control of this. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I agree with that. But the other critique of these social media platforms is that not only are they amenable to the kind of behaviour which you described, but they actually encourage certain kinds of consumption of information which might be inimical to a properly functioning democracy. They tend to reinforce prejudices. If you if your, if your actions show that you like certain things or have certain beliefs, they will feed you more of that rather than giving you an alternative view. They very often look to press emotional buttons as opposed to as opposed to intellectual ones. So the, all those things are inherent in these systems. Oh, yes, absolutely right on, on every point there except one <laughs> the very very first one is look there's no there's no alternative to optimism other than getting to the top of a high building and jumping off you know if, if that was really if you really did lose uh, uh, the, the thought that we couldn't fight back to some degree at any rate then then that's the option no but i think uh, i think you're right absolutely right that the the great problem here is that uh, people are not being addressed they're not being given arguments and putative facts as if they could draw an inference from it and come to a conclusion which is which is uh, seems rational because it seems to come from a valid argument but instead it's a, a question of emotion and in the case of the trump election and in the eu referendum the people who were on the trump side or, or the leave side were people who when you ask them why they did that or why they voted that way will will give you what very often sounds like a very very silly answer and that's a clue to something intriguing when people give silly answers to why questions it's because they don't have a reason they have an attitude they acted on the basis of a, a an emotional set towards something towards immigration towards poverty towards um, you know if you're if you're a white male in the United States of America you feel under siege everybody is getting ahead of the queue uh, you know and, and you're stuck and so on so of course you you want to lash lash out at that that's an attitude people in in the UK many many of them not the ones who have a, a really clear sense of what the agenda is for for brexit but but people who were over decades fed a line about how awful the EU is and Brussels is controlling us and they all want us to have straight bananas or something, they, they get an attitude towards it and they vote on the basis of it. So when you say, why did you do it? They say, oh, because I want the old light bulbs back. Or in, in one case, I heard somebody say, oh, because there's too much football on telly. Now, when somebody says that... Which is true, of course. <laughs> it is true. But when somebody says that, you, you know they haven't... It's not a thing they've thought through, but they felt it very deeply. So... 
How do you counter that? How do you counter the fact that a lot of the stuff which is pushed out there uh, into cyberspace is looking for the triggers, looking for emotional triggers, looking to nudge people into attitudes and mindsets which will uh, work on the side of a, of a program that the people pushing that stuff out want? How do you deal with that? Well, it's quite hard, you know. Swift said, you can't reason people out of views that they weren't reasoned into. If, they, if they've been manipulated into an attitude, how, how by fact and argument and, and rational analysis are you going to get them back to the other side? So it is a very, very difficult task, yes. But there is no alternative but to be optimistic about doing it. I just wonder also, um, given that we're largely, you know, in the book you identify the Brexit vote and, and the election of Donald Trump as being certainly the, the most obvious symptoms of, of this crisis fa- facing uh, democratic systems. And if that's the case, are there not other also very profound forces at work here? One of the things that struck me in the aftermaths of both those votes was where um, there were, you know, I would read interviews with people who had voted for Trump or for Brexit when it didn't really seem necessarily to be in their objective economic interest. But they had somehow become dislocated from believing that the system would actually do anything positive for them at all. So there was a desire just to break something to see what happened. And that kind of bespeaks a kind of an, an alienation, doesn't it? Very, very, very uh, well put. That, I think, is dead right. Now, the thing is this, you know, if you look at, at the, um, uh, the history of an economy, at any point in its history, you go back decades, you go back centuries, there are going to be groups of people who are, feel marginalized, they feel left behind, they feel ignored, and they are suffering. No question about it. And it's certainly the question, uh, the, the, the state uh, now, that that is the case. And it is the, the, the case rather dramatically at the moment because for the last quarter of a century or more, but certainly in the last 10 years since the 2008 crash, people on middle and lower incomes, they've seen their living standards stagnate. You know, the, the queue they're in to, this, to the uplands uh, it has been stationary all that time. People who are very well off at the very top of the pile, the top 1% or 2%, they've seen their wealth increase since 2008 fourfold in Western economies. Now, inequality in a society is profoundly toxic. It's very dangerous. It's very destabilizing. And people who are at the bottom of the heap and who feel that they've been left out and nobody's paying attention or helping them, they do get more and more dissatisfied. Now, when you're at the bottom of the heap, you're out of work, you, you're, you're angry, it's very hard to organize. This whole concept of populism, of a sort of groundswell of anger and a movement coming from the bottom up, it's actually nonsense. What happens is demagogues, Marine Le Pen, Nigel Farage, Gert Wilders, Trump, people like that, demagogues come along and they, they single out these groups and they say to them, you've got a problem, you, they really have got a problem. And we know who's to blame. And then they point the finger at somebody else, the EU or the elites. I mean, in the case of Trump from his penthouse at the top of Trump Tower in Fifth Avenue in New York, blaming the elites. Um, and, and they can, they can, they can sow the seed in the minds of people that, yes, here is somebody who understands our problem. And doesn't matter what else they say, really, this is the person who might be able to shake things up kind of defibrillate the system that at the moment is working against us. Because very very often some of the people who I'm talking about who are expressing those sentiments are people who in their parents might have been, you know, voted communist in France or they might have been members of a trade union in Ohio, but all those kind of structures have sort of have melted away or collapsed. Indeed, uh, in the case of the EU referendum, a lot of uh, traditional Labour supporters went over to UKIP or threatened to go over to UKIP and that, that really frightened the, the party tremendously and seemed to suggest a kind of realignment which would be very un- helpful to the familiar structures. But I was going to add 
about about the demagogues is that the demagogues are aided either themselves using these techniques or by people who want to see them win by these new interventive social media cyberspace type of techniques. This is why I think that the one biggest factor which has really shifted the ground. You go back 20 years, you hear a politician telling porkies, you know, on on the hustings. But now those porkies are tailor-made, they're tested, they are pushed out there covertly into into hacks in your Facebook uh, feed or, you know, uh, into one of these these news, um, uh, online news uh, sources. And that makes them much, much more dangerous because much more persuasive. And that is the thing, I think, which has introduced this change over recent years. And 2016 seems to me to be the tipping point, the sort of cascade uh, point where finally, in the ideal circumstances for it to work, which is a referendum, a yes, no, in, out, or a presidential election, it's one person or the other, more difficult in a general election maybe, Mm. but in those cases, it's tailor-made for the use of this technique. Because don't forget, it's, it's aimed at a, a highly uh, identified group of people. Not the two main voting blocks, but the swing vote in the middle. You just get enough of them to move. And the beautiful thing about it, I mean, you have to admire it in a way, is that Trump won the White House with, with a, a, quite a substantial minority of the popular vote. In the case of the EU referendum, even though the franchise for the referendum was restricted, it was just kept to an, a normal general election franchise, which is itself intolerable, really. But of that restricted franchise, only 37% of the electorate voted to leave. But on the day, that 37% of the total was 51.9% of the votes. And the the people who were happy with that result, which which I'm not, but the people who were happy with that result will say, well, they won, you know, tough, you know, you know, you lost, you lost, they won. Those sort of binary, it strikes me, and one of the things about the book, and which is, which is really interesting, is you, you lay out, uh, in the course of of a relatively brief book, the sort of the roots and the ideas which led to, to what we now call representative democracy with universal suffrage, Mm. with everybody having a, having a right to vote. And, Important to emphasize within that the the word representative as well as the word democracy and the idea that it's not just the people deciding whatever the people decide by majority and that is the law. That there are whole sets of checks and balances about rights and about, uh, I suppose, filters through which decisions are made in the, to change or, or to retain elements of society. Yeah. A parliamentary system, an executive, a legislature. Um, and... Do those? Do we need to go back and look at those now, given that their roots are probably in in the case of Europe, you know, three three hundred, two hundred, three hundred years old? The same in the United States. I, I just I look at the United States, and you look at something like the Second Amendment, which is clearly something which has either been interpreted into absurdity or shouldn't have been there in the first place. But it seems impossible to remove it, even though most of the people in the United States actually don't want it there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, all, all this. Uh, you, you put the point terribly well there, which is that uh, a long careful discussion uh, issued in this idea that you could you could safely confidently and appropriately place final political authority in the preferences the choices of the people in their vote in their having a voice quite independently of uh, how much property they have what what gender they are what how much they know what educational level they have every citizen has a right to a voice but how do you parlay that how do you translate it into reasonably good sound government well, you set up institutions which would affect that. And this idea, the idea of representative democracy, where the adjective representative is the key thing, 
we don't send uh, people off to the Doyle or to Parliament to be our messenger boys and girls or, or just to be our delegates. We send them there to do a job of work on our behalf. Get the facts, think about it, listen to debate, discuss, um, come to a judgment, do something on the basis of that judgment. And if we, the people, don't like it, we can chuck you out next time and put somebody better in. This is the, this is the aim. Of, and the institution's meant to affect that for us. It seems to me... That's a pretty reasonable idea. You know, I've I've got a very, very sort of modest idea about how we could so reform things carefully and and, and quite moderately and quite realistically that we could get that back on track. One of the great things about that, of course, would be the transparency issue, a number of others. But because these institutions are populated by, you know, uh, career politicians and by people who've learned how to pull those levers in ways that suit them, and and because of the... um, kind of inattention that we, the people, uh, are are habituated to, so we don't really watch closely enough. For all these sorts of reasons, those institutions have been hijacked. We've known that they've been. We've been uncomfortable about it for long enough. It nevertheless has been sort of manageable because we've been able to change the government from time to time. But now, now is the moment when that hijacking of the system is way out of our control. And this, this is therefore the point where we need to try to recover it. We need to be able to, to think uh, about the original purpose, for example, of the American uh, Constitution. Now, you make the very good point about the Second Amendment. When the Second Amendment was passed about right to bear arms, and of course it was for militias, not for individuals, but the right to bear arms, the arms in question were muzzle-loading muskets, which were very inaccurate and, and not very powerful not Kalashnikovs and not 40 of them. Mm. You know, so obviously something has gone badly wrong there where the constitution has become ossified. It's become sclerotic. You can't change it. You can't get rid of things that are just not working any longer because it's now a piece of scripture. So our orders, our democratic order has to remain faithful to its intentions, which is it's got to be rational. It's got to be sensible. It's got to be common sense. It's got to be pragmatic. Take it out of that zone and you get the kind of problem that we see with the Second Amendment. But given that reality, how likely is it, for example, that the American political system would be capable of reforming, let's say, something like an electoral college, which has delivered, you know, the presidency to to the person who got less votes at least twice in the last in the last four elections? Or you write in the book also about the the absurdities of the first past to post system mm. in the in the UK and the mm. effect that mm. has upon yeah. upon government there also. Uh. Absolutely. If if the electoral system isn't right, then you know there, there are going to be well uh, uh, difficulties in the consequences. So, but but these things are, are relatively easy if if you've got common sense and, and will and and leadership in a country. These are things that you could conceivably reform. I mean, for example, Although the Liberal Democrats failed dismally with their with their referendum in the five years ago. They did, but but you see that there was a particular reason why that was. I mean, complete lack of debate and discussion and information of the public, and the public is very small C and big C conservative on uh, constitutional changes. Mm. Um, But now I think enough of a shock has been delivered to the system where the debate, for example, about the Electoral College in the United States has become a live one. So they're talking about that in the U.S. now. Uh, and they're, they're recognizing that um, the uh, system of representation in the country, the first past the post, is no longer fit for a purpose either. So we're starting to, to see uh, d- debate in the right places. And the right places are those places where eventually um, people who do have a role in informing public opinion and in galvanizing uh, some activism on behalf of these changes will come. Always the problem with intellectuals is... <laughs> that uh, they, they go for the extreme option. Junk democracy, let's have sortition. 
you know, or, or, or let's go back to epistocracy. The one, the one thing in Plato that I do agree with is that if you put the philosophers in charge, that'll be okay. <laughs> but it's <laughs> unlikely to happen, okay? So because Plato, should... of course, was deeply suspicious of, of democracy. He, oh, he he should... it, it would be mob rule, which ultimately would lead to some form of, some form, some form of autocracy with the demagogue. Exactly. Yeah. Indeed, it was he who gave the very word democracy its bad odour, which is why it took until 1917 for a world statesman to, to talk about democracy in a positive way. Woodrow Wilson said that he was taking the US into the First World War to defend democracy. Now, alas, too many American presidents since then have wanted to defend democracy by going to war overseas. Mm. But um, at least it showed that sentiment about the, the, the concept of uh, the right of the people had, had shifted. So you could, you could use the word in, in a positive sense. But I think, you know, that the, um, what Madison and uh, Benjamin Constant and de Tocqueville and John Stuart Mill, all these people worked out in the way of, of a democratic order which would satisfy the uh, anxieties that somebody like Plato, indeed many people since Plato have thought exactly the same thing. Churchill said the strongest argument against democracy is two minutes conversation with the voter because it, it reveals all their short-termism and so on. All that misses the point. These guys, the, the Madisons and John Stuart Mills and so on, they, they really saw the right point, which is it doesn't matter your, your age, your sex, your, your amount of money you own. None of that matters. It, the, the, it really is simply a matter of the fact that you're a citizen. You should have a voice. Now, how are we going to turn all that tumult of voices in the, in the people? into something worthwhile in the way of government. And, and we have tended to do it through parliamentary government, but I, I wonder what you think, particularly since the Brexit vote, of referendums. We have a lot of referendums in Ireland because of the nature of our constitution, and so there's a whole bunch of things that we can't change without having a, a popular vote on it. We'll probably have three or four of them over the next couple of years, according to according to the current government, some on very, on very contentious issues. Um, referendums are seen in some quarters as the ultimate expression of democracy. The people get to have their say. But in other quarters, they're seen as actually being not a very good idea. They have a very bad tradition in Europe, following Woodrow Wilson, who insisted that they be held all across Europe, usually with disastrous consequences in the 1920s and 1930s. Are referendums a good way for a democracy to conduct its business? In my view, not. I think a representative democracy is inconsistent with referenda. I mean, after all, if the idea is that we we um, send people off to do this important job of work, which is get the facts and think about them, be well informed and make careful judgments, think of the interests of everybody. And if the institutions and the constitution is such that it protects minorities against the possible potential tyranny of the, of the majority, then, then that's a system which in the imperfect state of human affairs is, is about as good as it can get, providing it is operated correctly. And referenda are just um, shoveling off the responsibility that our representatives are meant to take on board to the people. But if you are going to have them, if you're going to have them, then they have to be very carefully constructed. They've got to have a threshold or a supermajority requirement. There has to be a proper uh, process of debate and discussion and information in the run-up to them so that people can be optimally well-informed about them. You can't do as the uh, proportional representation referendum in, in the UK in 2011 was, just thrown at the people with far too little information, far too complex as well in many cases about this rather inelegant system that was being proposed mm. because you're heading for a fall. And, and in fact, you, you can see how people who were um, very much against the idea of a more proportional electoral system uh, were delighted by kicking this into touch for the next 50 years. And, you know, the, the idea of revisiting it very soon 
uh, just been completely capped. Uh, so it would pay them not to be informative, not to put in a supermajority bar. By the way, one thing that slightly worries me about the Irish uh, referendums that are coming up on things like abortion and uh, blasphemy and so on is that you, you do your referendum by simple majority. And for, for major social change, constitutional change, that doesn't seem to me to be right. You think it should be a supermajority, a two-thirds or a 60-40 or whatever one would decide I, I, to make Either it. that. I, I mean, one way of doing it is to, is to put in a threshold and say it's got to be, say, 40% of the total electorate. Mm. But it's a very reasonable, modest kind of threshold. Uh, in very, very, very major constitutional change, it should be much more demanding. 60 or 66% of, uh, of the electorate, not of the votes cast, um, now, in the case of the U.S. Constitution, of course, you look at they have to have a 66% majority of both House of Representatives and the Senate, then a 75% of all the states in order to get an amendment into the Constitution. And that's one reason why well over 3,000 amendments in the history of the United States of America have issued in 35 amendments. So it's, it, that's too ossified. You have to somehow or other strike a balance. Surely it's within the wit of, of the human mind to reach one. I did want to ask you one more thing. The, the, the book is fascinating and it raises lots of lots of interesting questions. One one point you raise is you talk about um, a Rousseau and Rousseau talks about the people. And there is a sense and it's almost separate from the way that we think about democracy in a civic society. It's this almost quasi-religious notion of the people, the will of the people, perhaps even the destiny of the people. And that's often been used in a in an anti-democratic way as a concept as opposed to a, a democratic way. And the other pressure, I think, perhaps that we see within modern societies are questions about where sovereignty starts and where it ends. What is a country? What is a super state? Obviously, a lot of these these questions came up in relation to Brexit, but they also come up with the sort of fears which are expressed by new right-wing parties in, in Europe about who is a member of the people and who, who who should not be a member of the people. I was listening to an interview with E.J. Dion, who is a American co-author of a new book about American populism, um, and he was arguing that it's a very important part of democratic systems that they're kind of that that they are rooted in a nation state of some sort, a coherent nation state to which everybody is bought in and you know what the boundaries of it are. And one of the things that struck me about Brexit was where the Leave side had at least some element of truth on their side was their critique of the failure of the European Union to develop a convincing set of identity ad identities, I suppose, within a democratic system. I mean, do you think that these kind of tensions between what the nation is, who the people of the nation are, and these large supranational identities, do they sort of contribute to the sort of confusion that we seem to find around democracy? Oh, I, I, think, I think so, yes. You raise a number of really, really interesting and important points there. To take the one about the people, of course, the invocation of the people is, uh, is uh, uh, a trope of demagoguery, um, you know, as, as old as the hills, really. And this concept of, of the people is really uh, the concept of the enfranchised and the concept of the enfranchised has been very contested throughout history. The enfranchised can only be people who own a certain amount of property or they can only be men or they can only be over a certain age or they can only be people who were born uh, in this country. You know, all those things are very, very contested and remain so now. So it, it's a, um, a, a very doubtful uh, and uh, unhelpful concept, I think. And indeed, a number of commentators on the, the idea of, of uh, democratic order uh, are sceptical, I mean, deeply sceptical about these sorts of appeals to the people when it's 
quite deliberately an elision between those who have the vote and the populace uh, as a whole. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it in the case of the EU. Britain has spoken. The people have spoken. You know, 37% of a, of a restricted franchise suddenly becomes the entire population of the country. So it's, it's a weasel word, and it's one which I think should be just left out of the debate altogether. However, in, in the case of, of uh, talking about nation-states... I mean, one of the great things about uh, the European project is that there is an idea embedded in that very, very imaginative, very flawed, but, but uh, uh, a rather wonderful creative idea towards which all these partner countries are working, is the uh, idea of uh, uh, an overall overarching kind of unity, which nevertheless respects the regions and the nationalities and the cultures within it. At the moment... National borders in post-Westphalian, post-1648 Europe are very, very artificial. All those borders are drawn in blood. All those borders enclose ethnicities and cultures and even languages and so on, which are not naturally um, affiliated with that geography, except in a very few cases, maybe in the case of of, uh, um, most of the island of Ireland, for example, that might be true. But um, just look at what's happened in Spain just recently with the uh, Catalonian uh, semi-referendum. Now, look at the fact that uh, France itself is a very diverse country. Germany uh, has uh, all the lander in Germany, all the different states which had existed as independent states before Bismarck, still have a very strong uh, historical and geographical identity. And the, those sorts of identities are okay. They're cultural ones. Um, there are kinds of dialectical aspects to them and people they can claim who are the heroes, icons of their, of their culture. And all that seems to me to be completely innocuous. It's when it gets hijacked into the kind of nationalism that Nazism was, for example, or where it tips over into racism, or where it is used in a flat-out lie about a country like the United Kingdom, which is so internally diverse from this exact point of view. Or it's used by unscrupulous politicians as it was in the Balkans in the 1990s, for example. Indeed, indeed. Mm. And indeed, you you cite the Balkans as a perfect example of how uh, uh, unscrupulous people can really make a dog's breakfast out of the lives and and futures of people by uh, focusing on exactly the wrong things. And so, therefore, to talk about the people in a nationalistic sense, uh, to talk about, uh, you know, uh, anything which has xenophobic roots or even racist roots in it, is to ferment trouble. And what we should be doing is getting away from that. Or we should be revisiting the question of how many identities we all have. An identity is a European, an identity is an Englishman, an identity is uh, somebody from Yorkshire. I mean, you know, we've got lots of identities. Um, and as soon as people become conscious of them, they cease to be prey to this little Englander view or I'm a Brit or, you know, whatever played into the EU referendum in ways that, for people who didn't really dig into it very much, was very unhelpful. So you are optimistic, ultimately, though, that, that these, these obstacles say, can I be overcome. As I say, I don't think there's an alternative to being optimistic. I, I really would jump off that building if I started to get pessimistic about these things. It's good to keep the fight going. AC Grayling, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. And Democracy and Its Crisis is published by One World. That's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. We are going to be recording a special podcast live at the Fianna Fáil Ard Esch this weekend, so do keep an eye out for that in your stream. Remember, you can find us always on irishtimes.com slash podcasts, or you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can always mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com, or I'm always knocking around somewhere on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.